Let's turn to Hosea chapter 13. Hosea chapter 13. And if my... iPad will cooperate. All right, there we go. Hosea 13. What can be said about everything that we've seen so far in the first 12 chapters of this, of this prophecy? <clears throat> There's been so much that has been said concerning the northern kingdom of, of, Ju- of uh, Israel, uh, the times that Judah themselves will be a, involved in uh, certain things as well. They're going to have their judgment coming after the judgment of, of, of the northern kingdom. Uh, and that by the Babylonians. So uh, we've, we've pretty much covered all the bases in this particular book. So as we're coming to a close, uh, one of the themes that we have to keep focused upon is that of, of how God's love fits into all of this because the Lord has been very tough with, uh, with Israel. And he's, and he's being tough for one reason, because he loves them. The discipline, the chastisement, the punishment, the uh, judgment, whatever you want to call it, is, is being brought upon them because of their disobedience, because of their rebellion. But it isn't because he hates them. And, th- and this is one of the things that we've seen from the very beginning of this book is that just as, as, as God wanted to be married to his people in that particular sense, where he's the husband and, and, and Israel is his is, is faithful wife. And then when they became unfaithful, then he used that illustration that this unfaithfulness is just like the unfaithfulness of, of, of Gomer to Hosea, the prophet. And, and so that has been pretty much the running theme throughout all. But the Lord has to make it very clear here as we get into the last two chapters of his great love for his people. Now we've been talking about that the last two weeks. <clears throat> so we're already in that foundational aspect. So to get into this chapter, let's just begin reading the first four verses and then we will see how This is winding down to to the last chapter. But it says in verse 1, When Ephraim spake trembling, he exalted himself in Israel. But when he offended in Baal, he died. Now, what we're going to see in this particular verse in just a moment is that it's speaking concerning Ephraim, the, the tribe, not Israel as a whole. Because we've been calling, well, the prophet has been calling Israel Ephraim because Ephraim is the, is the, is the most populous of the tribes of the northern kingdom. And uh, there's, an, there's other reasons why they, they receive that particular title. But, uh, but nonetheless, they're, they're also one of the uh, most wicked of the tribes in the sense of how they pursued you know, the, uh, the idolatry. So anyway, he's speaking on the tribe here. When, Ephraim when spake trembling, he exalted himself in Israel. 
<clears throat> but when he offered in Baal, he died. And now they sin more and more and have made them molten images of their silver and idols according to their own understanding, all of it the work of the craftsmen. They say of them, let the men that sacrifice kiss the calves. Therefore they shall be as the morning cloud and as the early dew that passes away, as the chaff that is driven with the whirlwind out of the floor and as the smoke out of the chimney. Yet I am the Lord thy God from the land of Egypt and thou shalt know no God but me, for there is no savior beside me. Now, if there is one dramatic effect that can be measured in the prophecy of Isaiah, it would be from the very onset, this constantly moving and consistently expanding progression toward the inevitable judgment that was to fall upon the northern kingdom of Israel. It would be much like the devastating destruction of an avalanche that begins somewhat slowly and, some, uh, and seemingly minuscule, but gathers momentum on its downward plunge, taking with it everything in its path. And so what that is describing, or what I'm describing here, is, is that the crisis was definitely on its way. It had already built up a lot of momentum. The Lord himself has given them opportunity upon opportunity to repent and get right. But in the fact that they're not doing that, the momentum is building up for their total destruction. And an avalanche is worse at the end than its beginning. So while Israel's sins were multiplying and ripening for judgment, ominous warnings of destruction were growing much clearer. The armies of Assyria were, were already on the march. And, the, and in chapter 13, the Lord was striking with flashes of, of lightning, you know, pow, 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 you know, just the things that he's saying as seen in the many and the very themes that are nearly in every verse of this chapter. In other words, almost every verse focuses on a different theme. So as we enter into chapter 13, we find the Lord singling out now this tribe of Ephraim for their arrogant attitude. Let's consider what it says again in verses 1 and 2. When Ephraim spake trembling, he exalted himself in Israel. But when he offended in Baal, he died. Now there's some commentators who look at the first verse where it says when Ephraim spake trembling, that means that he was, when, when he first started out as, as, as some influence as a, as, a, as a tribe, I say he, but the tribe itself. When Ephraim spake trembling, it was speaking from a, from a position of fear, and therefore he was exalted in Israel. Uh, that may or may not be the right way of, of seeing this, because clearly it says he exalted himself in Israel. That may mean also that he was exalted because he had been humbled. And certainly we know from, from verses in, in the book of James and in, in some of the other prophets that he who humbles himself will be exalted in due season. But then notice the next part. It says, but when he offended in Baal, he died. Now, some of the understanding here then would be that this, if, if it, it was not, hum, not humility but pride, 
that the first part of verse 1 is speaking of, then the pride itself has led to its, to its death because the, the, the arrogance of, of a tribe that puts himself on top of things or above everybody else, then uh, by their offending in Baal, which means by, by being a, an offense to God in the worship of Baal, that brought him to death. Spiritual death. And eventually, destruction within the tribe and, of course, the nation itself. And what does it say? It says, and now they sin more and more and have made them molten images of their silver and idols according to their understanding. All of it, the work of craftsmen, of the craftsmen, they say of them, let the men that sacrifice kiss the calves. Now, it, it, it might be that the tribe of Ephraim began in a humble position, the person Ephraim being the younger brother of Manasseh, the two brothers, and both of them the sons of Joseph. Now these were adopted by Jacob, and we know that in, in, in Genesis 48 when Jacob was an old man and he was on his sickbed, that he blessed Joseph's sons. And in the process of blessing them, he reversed their birth order. Certainly by the, by the leading of, of, of the Lord. But nonetheless, in his blessing of these sons, he reverses the birth order, and Ephraim, who was the younger, received the honor given to the firstborn. In, in, in some cases, that, that, can, that can bring a little bit of pride into the issue. But over the years, the people of Ephraim considered themselves an important tribe that deserved being listened to and even obeyed. After all, think about this, Joshua was of the tribe of Ephraim. Joshua the son of Nun was of that tribe, the tribe of Ephraim. And uh, as was Jeroboam the first. Jeroboam the first, of course, being the one who was leading all of Israel into idolatry. The tabernacle had been pitched in Shiloh, or Shiloh, which was in Ephraim. So they had a number of reasons why they wanted to have that kind of, of uh, position uh, to lead. And, and to, uh, uh, again, they had the most uh, of, of any of the tribes as well. So that's another standpoint of, uh, for, uh, for pride. But it was after the death of King Saul. It was after the death of King Saul that the Ephraimites refused to submit to David's rule. And they were strongly prejudiced against the tribe of Judah, which was the ruling tribe. So when the northern kingdom was established, the Ephraimites were already so powerful that the kingdom was even called by its name. But Ephraim abandoned the God of Abraham, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and, and they abandoned the God of, 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 the, of the patriarchs for the God Baal, the God Baal. And that brought spiritual death. Now, this could be traced to Ahab. In 1 Kings 16, verses 29 through 32, it says, And in the 30 an eighth year of Azza, king of Judah, began Ahab, the son of Omri, to reign over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel 
in Samaria 20 and two years. Now look at verse 30. And Ahab the son of Omri did evil in the sight of the Lord above all that were before him. So he became, the, up to his point, the, the most wicked of the kings of, of, of the northern kingdom of Israel. And it came to pass as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that he took to wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal, or Baal, and worshiped him. And he reared up an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he had built in Samaria. So it is at this height of guilt that Ephraim died. Sin has within itself, you see, and in the sight of God, what some have called the germ of death. Though that death may not visibly take effect till long after. Remember Adam, when they fell, when Adam and Eve fell in the garden. I mean, he died many, many years later. Yet he had died immediately, spiritually, when he sinned against God. He would die physically many years later, but spiritually, mankind was stained with sin. So sin has that effect. This is the reason why Jesus came, because of the power of sin. And then you add to that uh, the power of the flesh, the power of the devil. These are things that John himself in the first letter that he wrote to the church, John the Apostle. First John, especially in chapter two, he talks about the world, the flesh, and the devil. And these are powerful entities because they all promote sin. The, flesh, the fleshly nature without Christ, we're already in sin. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. So these things that pertain to sin and death, we have to compare with the statement made by the Apostle Paul in Romans 7, verses 7 through 9. Because there he says, what shall we say that is the law sin? God forbid. Nay, I, I had not known sin but by the law. For I had not known lust except the law had said, Thou shalt not covet. But sin, taking occasion by the commandment, wrought in me all manner of concupiscence, which is covetousness or lusting and desire or a lusting desire or a lustful desire. For without the law, sin was dead. For I was alive without the law once, but notice this. But when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. So the emphasis is on how we die because of sin. And so the people of Ephraim were, or Ephraim were glad and they were willing participants in Jeroboam's man-made religion by sacrificing to golden and silver calves. 
You get back to verse 2 of, of Hosea 13. It says, And now they sin more and more, and have made them molten images of their silver and idols according to their own understanding. All of it the work of the craftsman. All of it the work of man. All of it the work of flesh. Not that which was given by command of the Lord as he did to Moses and Aaron to uh, make the uh, to make all of the furniture for the tra for the tabernacle and all the tools and the implements of the tabernacle, which was which which was all found as a pattern from heaven to here. No, this is talking about how man, just in his own mind, in his own ways, created or at least put together things. We man doesn't create like God does. But then they say of them. Let the men that sacrifice kiss the calves. Literally in the Hebrew, that, that phrase is very, it's painful because it says, literally, it says, let the sacrificers of men, let those who sacrifice men kiss the calves. So what it's already admitting here is that there was human sacrifice, primarily of children, to the god of Baal, who was also known as Molech. And it was Molech to whom they sacrificed the children. And therefore they shall be as the morning cloud. Notice, notice these pictures here. They shall be as the morning cloud and as the early dew that passes away, as the chaff that is driven with the whirlwind out of the floor, and as the smoke out of the chimney. Because what, is, what it's saying here in these first three verses is that they seem to, to enjoy participating in, Jerob in Jeroboam's man-made religious practices by sacrificing to calves of gold and of silver and even offering human sacrifices and even, and get this, even kissing the calves themselves as an act of worship. This, this passage here is a condemnation of that. It's a reminder to us that nowhere in the scriptures does the Lord say, make a, an image and then bow to it and kiss it. But there are those today who do that. Even in Christendom, there are those today who will make statues and make all kinds of images, and then somehow those images are worshipped. And that's deadly wrong. God says, I, I'm a spirit. Jesus said, I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. He will come and be with you. He will come and be among you. He will come upon you, and he will be in you. That's all that we are given to worship. The God who created the heavens and the earth is not to be made into any kind of image. And the simple reason is that idols are nothing. Psalm 115, verses 4 through 8. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they speak not. Eyes they have but they see not. 
They have ears, but they hear not. Noses they have they, but they smell not. They might stink when you smell them, but they don't themselves smell. They have hands, but they handle not. Feet have they, but they walk not. Neither speak they through their throat. They that make them are like unto them. Now stop and think. If idols are nothing, then what are those who worship them? That's the whole idea of this statement in verse 8. They that make them are like unto them. So is everyone that trusteth in them. We have a living God. A God that we can't see with these eyes, but we see the effects of his presence among us each and every day of our lives. We have seen the power, the miracle working power of God in the very life that he gave us to testify of his presence in us. Every day. The very fact that you breathed this morning, and I thank God that you breathed this morning, because if you hadn't, you wouldn't be here tonight. You're here now. And you're here because you love Jesus with all of your heart. And you've never even seen him. But you believe in him. Because you believe the testimony. You believe his word. And his word is not only ringing true, his word is true. Because it's truth. And it's all truth about him. So we ourselves look at where we stand in, in the presence of a mighty God and a holy God. And we ourselves will say, wow, without him we're nothing. Without him we have nothing. Isn't this what Jesus told us in, in, in John chapter 15 when he, talks, he calls himself the, the vine and we're the branches? Without him, we're nothing. Without him, we have nothing. But you worship an idol, and guess what? You're a nothing. Because God loves us for worshiping him. He doesn't see us as nothings. We humble ourselves. We, we, don't, we don't boast over others. You know, we, we, we're all together lovers of Jesus Christ servants of the, of the Lord. But he's given us life, which means we're something. And something to him. But these people were nothings. The Lord compared the people to the nothings with which they were familiar with. And look at the pictures that he talks about them, the morning dew that is burned away by the sun. Well, the morning dew and the, uh, the burned away by the sun means that when the, when the sun comes, they're not there, they're nothing. The chaff that is blown away by the wind. The smoke that disappears out of a chimney or window is no longer seen. It was there for a second and boom, it's gone. That's how he describes it. 
almost like a vapor too. When you think about a vapor, a vapor just is out for a second and then boom, it's gone. You never see it again. It is then now, getting back to our text, it is then that the Lord deals with the ingratitude of the nation of of Israel. Verses 4 through 6. Notice what he says. He says, yet I am the Lord thy God from the land of Egypt, which means I am the Lord thy God since the land of Egypt. From the time of the land of Egypt, I am the Lord your God. And thou shalt know no God but me. For there is no Savior beside me. Oh, there are tremendous statements of, of that by the prophet Isaiah. When you read them in, in chapters 42 and 43 of those wonderful chapters of, of, that, of that prophecy. There is no Savior beside me. I did know thee in the, in the wilderness, in the land of great drought. I knew thee. According to their pasture, so were they filled. They were filled and their heart was exalted. Therefore have they forgotten me. Here it is that God gives them all of these things and they're filled. But what have they been doing? What is the one lesson that we've been learning about about Israel? They're boasting in what they've gotten. And they're not giving God, the the God of Israel, the the credit. They're, They're not giving him the glory. They're not giving him the honor. They're not giving him the praise for what they have. They're taking that for themselves. Or they're giving it to their stinking idols. Because he says, therefore have they forgotten me. They've forgotten me. Now you think of how the gospel, let me go back. You think about how the, the nations began after the flood and after the, uh, uh, the Tower of Babel. And the nations were spread to all parts of the world. When you think about that happening, it all started after the flood with Moses and his three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And I'm sure, and we studied this when we studied the gospel, I should say the, the book of Genesis years ago. It seems like years ago. It is years ago. About eight years ago, we, st- we were studying this. But, but we, we, we made it very clear that, that when they went forth, they went out into the world, that they had taken the knowledge of God, the God who created them, with them. But it didn't end up that way, did it? And that's where eventually they get to the plain of Shinar, with the Tower of Babel. Now they're creating their own religion. And they have Nimrod there who some believe was a giant. And giants were still a part of all the mess that was going on after the flood. It does not mean that God didn't complete what he had purposed with the flood. What it means is that the challenge is for us to stay faithful to the truth and knowledge of God remains with us each and every day of our lives. What we, what we have to fight every, every day is the world, the flesh, and the devil, and all their mission is together is to destroy our faith in the God of the Bible. 
Let's draw our faith in, in, in Jesus Christ. So first, the living and true God said to his people, in effect, there is no Savior beside me. There was no Savior in the golden calf. There was no Savior in Baal. There was no Savior in Molech. There was no Savior in any God worshipped by the nations surrounding Israel. There, by the way, just as there is no Savior today in Islam, there's no Savior today in Buddhism or in Hinduism or in any Eastern religion. There are no Saviors in the false cults of Christendom. And there are more false cults in Christendom today than ever before. And let's face the reality in our day and time. There is no savior in a faith or a dogma of good works alone. And there are certainly no saviors in humanism and communism or socialism. There are no saviors in man's political uh, kingdoms. There's only one savior. And his name is Jesus Christ. He is the Savior, the only Savior, the true Savior, the true Redeemer, the true Messiah of Israel, and the Savior of the world. And yes, the people were guilty. They were guilty of failing to acknowledge the Lord as their God, the Lord who had delivered their ancestors from Egyptian bondage, and they refused to acknowledge these two facts that the Lord alone is the Savior and that there is no Savior except Him. And that is what the, and, and that, it, that it was the Lord who looked after them. That, that was also ignored. They uh, ignored the Lord who looked after them. They refused to acknowledge the Lord who looked after them. Even as He looked after their ancestors in the dry, thirsty desert through their wilderness, experiences and wanderings. You know, it's painfully sad when, when people love their sins too much to acknowledge the Lord. You know, think about that for just a moment. It's sad when people love their sins too much to acknowledge the Lord. You know, we all struggle with sin. We all struggle with the temptations. But I, I, would, I would declare that for most of us here, if not all of us, we have a victory every day when we just, you know, in the midst of it, rebuke the sin and acknowledge the Lord who gave us the power to, to stand fast against it. And then get into God's word, to get in there to say, this is, this is my help. This is my guide. This is the light to my feet, the, light to, the, the lamp to my feet, the light to my path. And my God is greater than whatever it is that's in this world. Now, if they acknowledge the Lord, if they acknowledge the Lord as the only living and true God, they would be obligated to obey his holy commandments and to live righteously. When I say obligated, I'm not, you know, I'm not saying like, you know, forced. I mean, it, it, it's, it's, it's there for us to say, you know, if, if you will do these things, I will bless you. If you do these things, I will bless you. Children of Israel heard that all the time. 
They would be indebted to live sacrificially in order to help meet the needs of the world because the Jewish people were called to bring the testimony of the Messiah and of, of the God of Israel to the world. That was their calling. But instead of living righteously and sacrificially, they chose to live selfishly, coveting and lusting after the fleshly pleasures, the wealth, the fame, the position, and the power of this world. And so they were doomed to die spiritually and for some eternally because of their attitude, because of their pride, because of their arrogance to believe that they were the ones in control. Verse 6 tells us that the people were guilty of pride and self-sufficiency and therefore they forgot about their God. The Lord had sustained them for 40 years in the wilderness and brought them into a land that was flowing with milk and honey, and yet in their abundance of, of blessings, they became too busy for God. Now stop and think. Have you ever been too busy for God? You know, the, the fact of the matter is, we may not say it in those particular words, but we have done it in that particular attitude. I'm too busy for God today. Don't say it. But you do it. You don't, you, do you understand what I'm saying? I'm too busy for God. You don't say it, but you do it. And where does it lead us? Where does it put us? Because when you begin to take that particular attitude that you're too busy for God, eventually there will be no room for God in their lives. I hate to say it, but I've seen it happen. You pray for people that go through that. You pray that they come out of that attitude because it's destructive. And I'm thankful to the Lord that, you know, you pray for some people that are just going through the, the worldly thing, you know, and then all of a sudden they come back to church or they come back to Bible study and then they're like, wow. You know, they're guilt-ridden. The, the weight of sin on their life and they're just coming. They go, oh, God. What do you tell them? I told you so. No, you don't tell them that. You know what you tell them? You say, praise the Lord. God has spoken to you. The Holy Spirit has, has convicted you. And you know what? We love you. We pray for you. We prayed for you. Let's, let's, let's move together now toward Jesus. Let's move with him, not away from him. Let's move with him. You know, if that's your testimony, praise the Lord. You've got a tremendous testimony. If that's your testimony. But we all struggle. We, we all are tempted sometimes to be more busy for ourselves than for God. So that's something to always watch out for. Because when you have no room for God in your life, you put things in, other things in front of your relationship, and, and the Lord would, of course, hold you responsible, which he does with Israel. He holds them responsible. Look at Hosea, verses seven and eight, uh, uh, Hosea 13, verses 7 and 8. 
he holds them responsible, as he would hold us responsible. He says, therefore, I will be unto them as a lion. As a leopard, by the way, will I observe them. You know what that means? He's, he's not like sitting there with you know, binoculars. He's, he observes them like, like a lion or a leopard waiting to pounce. Then he says, I will meet them as a bear that is bereaved of her whelps and will rend the call of their heart. And there will I devour them like a lion. The wild beast shall tear them. Man, that's, I mean, that's, that's using three, three animals there for, uh, just to, to rip you up. <laughs> but but there's, there's some interesting pictures here. The, the, the God who had sustained them, you see, and helped them was now going to be their chastiser because they had turned from him. He would be as a liar, a lion and a spotted leopard lying in wait for them. That's, that's what it means, you know, to observe them. It wasn't like just watching them. He said, no, you know, lying in wait for them like, like a predator does. Those are predator animals. But as a God who illustrates his wrath and punishment so powerfully, he also demonstrates his love in illustration as well. There in verse 8. Don't miss this. He says, I will meet them as a bear that is bereaved of her whelps. Nothing is more tender than a mother in, in the wild, like a bear. Because there's nothing more terrible than a bear that has been robbed of her cubs. That's the picture here. That's the picture when it says, I will meet them as a bear that is bereaved of her whelps. It's a picture of his love because he's now burdened like a mother bear that has been robbed of her cups, robbed by idolatry robbed by arrogance and pride. So he says in verse 9, O Israel, thou hast destroyed thyself, but in me is thine help. Now we've come back to his love. Israel, thou hast destroyed thyself, but in me is thine help. I will be thy king. Where is any other that, might, that may save thee in all thy cities? Where is anybody else that will save you? And thy judges of whom thou sayest, give me a king and princes. Where is them? Where, where are they, I should say? I gave thee a king in mine anger. You can go all the way back to Saul. I gave you a king in my anger and took him away in my wrath. That's powerful. So we see a contrast here in verse 9. O Israel, thou hast destroyed thyself. 
Your destruction is of yourself. You have destroyed yourself. This is certainly a principle seen throughout the scriptures. For example, a proverb that fits into this whole prophecy is found in Proverbs 6.32. And by the way, it fits here because of, of, the, of the nature of, of this statement. But whoso committeth adultery with a woman. And of course, adultery was one of the major problems. Spiritual adultery was a problem with Israel and the, and, and the Lord. But whoso committeth adultery with a woman lacketh understanding. He that doeth it destroyeth his own soul. So you fall into this particular sin. You are destroying your own soul. Go down to Proverbs 8.32. And I, I'm going to give you a few verses before we get down to the main verse. But beginning at verse 32 to get the sense of this whole passage. It says, Now therefore, hearken unto me, O ye children, for blessed are they that keep my ways. Now, we need to know that. Blessed are you if you keep God's ways. Okay, so you want to be blessed to keep God's ways. Hear instruction and be wise and refuse it not. Now remember this chapter of Proverbs is speaking about God personified as wisdom. Uh, hear not instruction, uh, I'm sorry, hear instruction, be wise and refuse it not. Verse 34, blessed is the man that heareth me, watching daily at my gates, waiting at the posts of my doors. For whoso findeth me findeth life, and shall obtain favor of the Lord. Now notice verse 36. But he that sinneth against me wrongeth his own soul. In other words, you destroy yourself. We have no right to be pointing at somebody else to say, he did it, she did it. Do you remember the sin in the garden? You remember Adam and Eve being before the Lord? Adam, you've sinned. The woman, Lord. He looks to Eve. Eve says, the serpent, Lord. Sorry, you can't do that with God. Besides, he knows your heart. He knows very well what you've done or what you haven't done which is take a stand against the temptation. He that sinneth against me wrongeth his own soul. All they that hate me loveth death. Now you might say, you might say well, I don't love death. Uh, I, I certainly don't, don't hate, hate God. But the point here is all they that hate me in the sense all they that don't obey me and do it willfully against me, you have put death now as your goal. That's, that's kind of scary. And yet he said to them, but in me is thine help. Verse nine, but in me is thine help. In effect, the Lord was saying to Israel, had you just rested your hope in me, I would have been always ready at hand to be your help. I would have been there. Turn to Psalm 46, if you will. Because the fact of the matter is, God's always there. God's always there for us. 
Now, I'll tell you as you're turning to Psalm 46 that, that the enemy will do everything he can to make you feel that God does, doesn't want to be your helper anymore. In other words, the enemy is like the, the person who tells you that your, your library card has been expired, you know. I'm sorry, you can't get any more books from this library because your card has expired. He tells you, you know, you can't go to God anymore, man. You've been there and you keep asking him to forgive you and he forgives you and then you just go back and do the same thing and he hates you. He hates you now. It's like, when did the devil become God's agent? When, when, did, when did he become that? But he didn't, did he? You are looking at me like, what are you talking about? The enemy, the devil is not God's agent. God is his enemy. And one day the Lord is going to take the matters and put them all into place with the devil. When that day comes, and we've already read about it in the book of Revelation, the lake of fire, we've read about all, of, all the things that pertain to the judgment of, of the wicked one. <clears throat> what I'm saying to you is that God is always ready to those who come to him humbly in repentance, come to him boldly, confidently to receive his forgiveness. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore will not we fear, though the earth be removed, though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, though the waters therefore or thereof roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake with a the swelling thereof. What do we have to fear? I have a cousin who has a son, uh, uh, one of her sons, he's, she's actually my second cousin, this would be I guess my third cousin. <laughs> Uh, she has a son that lives in Anchorage, Alaska, and, she, and last week when they had the, when they had the uh, earthquake in, in Anchorage, she had called me to pray for him. And at that time, uh, she said, I, I'm, I'm trying to communicate. We were talking, and then all of a sudden, we got, our line got cut off, you know, so. But uh, she, uh, she called back to say that everything's fine now. But the point is that, uh, you know, there are so many things that are happening in the world today because of the days and times in which we're living. But, but my question to you as believers in Jesus Christ is this, do we have anything to fear in this world? The reality is we don't. Why? Because we have a great God who loves us and a God who protects us and keeps us and watches over us in the midst of all of this craziness and all of this weirdness and all of this insanity. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16 says, See in them that we have a great high priest that has passed into the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast. In other words, stand fast in the profession of faith that you have made in Jesus Christ. For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with a feeling of our infirmities. Which means that double negative there is really powerful because it means that, he, that we do have someone that can be touched by the feeling of our infirmities. 
He was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We can come to our God and he will be there. And if we lack wisdom, consider James 1 verse 5. It's not going to be up here, but James 1 5 says, If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, who giveth freely and without reproach. These are the benefits that we have as believers in Jesus Christ. And every day we should take, care, we should take uh, notice of all those benefits. We should take advantage of those benefits. Because our God is, our, is the God who provides for our every need through Jesus Christ. So the question that was being asked here is, where is the king that you substituted in my place? Where is the king? Where is the idol? Where is this being? Saul was a disaster. Jeroboam and all the kings of Israel were worse. And this happened all because they wanted a king like, like the other nations. They did not want God as their king. Well, we better want God as our king because there's no other king but our God. And his name is Jesus. Let's go on to finish here. Verses 12 through 16. I want to do this kind of quick and we'll sum it up here tonight and then we'll... Uh, when we start the last chapter next week, I'll, I'll do a little introduction just to kind of touch on things that we don't touch on tonight. Let's just read it. The iniquity of Ephraim is bound up. His sin is hid. The sorrows of a travailing woman shall come upon him. He is an unwise son. For he should not stay long in the place of the breaking forth of the children. I will ransom them from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. O death, I will be thy plagues. O grave, I will be thy destruction. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Repentance shall be hid from my eyes. Though he be fruitful among his brethren, an east wind shall come. The wind of the Lord shall come up from the wilderness and his spring shall become dry and his fountain shall be dried up. He shall spoil the treasures of all pleasant vessels. Samaria shall become desolate, for she has rebelled against her God. <clears throat> they shall fall by the sword. Their infants shall be dashed in pieces, and their women with child shall be ripped up. That is describing, by the way, the last verse is describing what is going to happen to Israel uh, through the... Uh, uh, through the Assyrians that come to uh, destroy them. The sins of Ephraim are being stored up, verses 12 and 13, are telling us that the sins of Ephraim are being stored up and they are getting ready to be poured back out to them in God's judgment. You see, they needed the Lord, but they needed more than just the Lord. They needed the new birth. They needed a new heart. But they refused to turn to God. And man, sadly enough, is no different today. He's born in sin and yet refuses to turn to the Lord who will cleanse them of all their sin. That we know is the, the new birth, being born again, and that into the family of God. We all know the passage, right? 
John chapter 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned. But he that believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation that light is come into the world. And men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. But he that doeth truth cometh to the light, that his deeds may be manifest, or made manifest, that they are wrought or produced in God. And then in verses 14 through 16, the last three verses, and again we'll come back and kind of fill in the gaps next time. But it's quite interesting that the Apostle Paul would, would quote Hosea 13, verse 14, in a passage that's in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 55. We'll get to that in just a moment. But he uses it to emphasize the victory of Jesus Christ over death in the grave because of his resurrection. <clears throat> but Hosea's words in this context may have a, may have a different meaning. But certainly the Holy Spirit knows how to direct the passages since he sees much more in his word than we do. So Paul takes it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and takes that passage that we just read there in, in, um, in verse 14, I will ransom them from the power of the grave, I will redeem them from death. And listen, O death, I will be thy plagues, O grave, I will be thy destruction. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 55, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? So Paul could take that passage and, and really not take it out of context, but it's a principle that will, of course, last through both the Old and the New Testament. The death in the power of God and of Christ has no power over him. And the grave has no victory over the Lord, no matter what the context is. So in that respect, then this is a tremendous statement that Paul has taken from the book of Hosea. But the statement by the Lord in verse 14 of our text does not suggest for a moment that God no longer loved his people. But the time had come for him to discipline the nation since they had rejected every manifestation, every other manifestation of his love they had rejected. And so the Lord revealed his love for Israel in his past mercies and now would reveal them in his present disciplines. The present disciplines would be the judgment that would come. Some people would say, that's an awfully hard discipline. Doesn't God know how to treat his own people? Doesn't he know how deep our disciplines have to be? Don't you know that God doesn't make any mistakes when he judges us in his love and mercy and grace? So beyond the darkness of these passages and these chapters, beyond the darkness, lies the dawn of another day. If you're still in 1 Corinthians, let's go back and let's finish by, by reading more of the passage that surrounds that verse, verse 55. Starting at verse 51. And I, sh I share this with you because I want you to see the depth of God's love 
for us. Paul said, behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall all, or we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Always abounding in the work of the Lord. These are not works that save us. These are works that come out of a saved life. And therefore, as much as you know that your labor is not in vain, whatever it is that you do for the Lord will never be in vain as you stand steadfast and unmovable in the God who conquered sin and death for us, conquered the, dra- the grave for us, and eventually he will, in fact, and has already, but will, in fact, completely conquer the enemy who represents death on this earth.